Uh, nice and easy to find today, page 1000. So uh, it's the very last chapter of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He's risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I've told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And please take up your Bibles. I would love for you to have one on your lap. And I want to uh, tell you something, it may alarm you, uh, seven days ago, that's right, seven days ago I saw a resurrection. It was on TV. Um, it's the resurrection of Tiger Woods. I don't say that to poke fun at what achieved. Truly it was a resurrection, says the Times uh, of India, no less. The, uh, the man has been through the mill. If you look at this next slide, some of you will know if you're a sports uh, fan, he's had quite an interesting few years. There was a massive issue in his personal life that was revealed before the gaze of the whole world, thanks to the internet and the TV cameras. No privacy was given to him at all, and he suffered very publicly. 
Um, what should have been kept private was on the public domain. He had a massive issue with pain-killing drugs. He had issues with his knee. He could hardly walk. And so his back was fused together with something that should only be bought from screw fix. Basically, there are a couple of screws put through his spine and a couple of things that should move don't. They're just fused together. But now the comeback began and it didn't go so well. And it took a few years and nothing was happening. He was going to have to quit until last Sunday. Then there was the resurrection of Tiger Woods, who hadn't won for about 13 years. That was his last Masters. And Nike are very pleased about it along with most of the sporting world. The, the amount of people that were screaming his name was quite something, whether you like sports or not. It was the resurrection of Tiger Woods, seven days ago. I wanted to think about the resurrection that took place 2,000 years ago. He wasn't a sportsman or a sports fan, but Christians believe, even claim, and have the audacity to say from a passage like Matthew chapter 28 that there was a resurrection in the middle of history and his name was not Tiger, his name was Jesus. When it comes to the resurrection, it's central to Christianity. If you disprove the resurrection, then really Christians do not have a leg to stand upon. We need to ask a question, did it really happen? I want to spend some time thinking about that. And if it did happen, so what? What should the implications be? Something like the resurrection is not just a naked fact that you have in your brain and it can have, have no impact on your heart. Say that, I had to think about this, say the earth traveling around the sun, is that right, the right way around? That has no impact on your heart or life, but it's true. Say um, the fact that the sun's out today, that's a reality. Say the fact that water boils at 100 degrees C. Those are just realities and facts of everyday life. The, the truth of gravity, what goes up always comes down. They have no impact on your heart, but the reality of the resurrections, Christians claim, if that is true, it is not a naked fact. It must change your heart. It must change your life. So let's think quickly. Did it really happen? Did it really happen? The empty tomb, Matthew 28, is one of four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the writers in each in their own way present evidence to say that 2,000 years ago, there was not a man with a fused back. There was a man who died at the hands of the Roman Empire. He was brutally killed in a public domain. But he died and then he was raised. If you uh, read the newspapers over the last few days and today as well, if you listen to what people say, if you to ask questions in the Ashley Centre or in Yule, um, what do you think about the person of Jesus Christ? They may say something like, well, yeah, he was a historical person. He taught well. He was loving and kind to other people. He changed some people's lives. But the Bible, eh, it's like make-believe. It was written down by a few deluded people a few hundred years after Jesus walked the earth, or so they think, and really you can't trust it. The man Jesus became a legend, a bit like the start of Lord of the Rings. Myth, well, it became legend. People added to it, and Jesus became more and more supernatural. It became a bit like a Superman without the tights. But that's not how to read the Bible. And it's simply not true. First of all, the book that we have in front of us, Matthew's Gospel, that was written not 200 years after the life of Jesus. Is it accurate? Can we trust it? Yes. This is not a myth that became legend. This is history. Look down at verse 15, sentence 15. Matthew writes down 30 years after Jesus died, 
and was resurrected. He writes in sentence 15, it says, So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Matthew's not writing 200 years after Jesus died. He's writing very closely, so much so that he can write that sentence, sentence 15, about stories going round the rumor mill. It says that in sentence 15. Paul, Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he wrote just 15 years after Jesus died and was raised to life again. So he could ask people, and you could go and ask people, the people with gray hair, did you hear about Jesus? What really happened? Were you there? Did you see it? You could check it out. You could kick the tires, as I said to someone recently. This account, Matthew's Gospel, is a historical document that you cannot, you cannot get rid of its claims very easily. But here's some more claims that I want us to look at. Here are just three. How do we know that the resurrection really happened? If you're not yet a Christian, here's some questions for you to think about respectfully. Look at uh, verse 8. You've got to think about the women. You've got to think about the women who are eyewitnesses. They're there in verse 1 of Matthew 28. They're there in verse 8 of Matthew 28. This is what it says in verse 8 of Matthew 28. So the women hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his Jesus' disciples. They were the first witnesses, verse 1. They ran away and told Jesus' followers, verse 8. Now this, if you were making up a religion, you would not write this sentences. You would write it in a different way. Because at that time, unlike the age in which we live, thankfully, women were not trusted. Women were second-class citizens. The testimony of women in law courts was not admissible. They were not trustworthy. They were second-class citizens. So why, if you're writing this as a historical account, would you record the fact that, verse 1, women were the first people there, uh, verse 8, women were entrusted with the fact that Jesus was alive and they had to pass the gospel on, pass the good news on. The only possible motivation of you writing these two sentences, if your name is Matthew, in about AD 65, is if they were the eyewitnesses. Why else would you write it? It wouldn't be trustworthy unless it was true. These women really saw the fact that the tomb was empty. They were bolder because they saw the tomb was empty. Here's another one. Oh yeah, well, not just the women. Back then, people were really gullible. It was the pre-scientific age. Heaven knows, it was even the time before the internet. Remember that. Well, look at uh, the reliability of the witnesses. Look at sentence 16 and 17. What do we think about that? Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Now, that's a very interesting sentence, that if you were the editor of Matthew and he gave you the manuscript, just like J.K. Rowling to Bloomsbury, you know, you might want to edit that last little phrase out because it doesn't sound too convincing, does it? They worshipped him, notice, but some doubted. Why would that be included? If you're trying to provide a watertight argument, if you want to persuade people and uh, you're writing a work of fiction, you would not include the women because they can't be trusted. You would not include the fact that, but some doubted. Here is the risen Jesus, Christians claim. He was seen, he was heard, he was touched, he was felt. He was known. He was looked at in the eye. But still it says, verse 17, some worshipped, but some doubted. If you were making this up, that sentence would not be there. 
because it puts doubt in people's mind. But the reason it's there is because this is not a legend. This is not a fairy tale. This is a real book with real people. If you saw the risen Lord, this is a real response. You might think, hang on, you died. I was there. I heard the tears. Some of the tears run down my cheeks. I ran away. I didn't want to be persecuted. Is it something I've ate? Is it something I've drank? This does not happen in the middle of history. You wouldn't be saying, my Lord and my God. And that's why it can be said that women were there. You can trust them. And that's why it said, sentence 16, 17, some worshipped, but some doubted. The followers of Jesus are normal people. They're not superheroes. They're not super women or super men. They're normal people. Don't you dare say the people back then were gullible. This is a real book. Jews did not believe in a bodily resurrection in the middle of time. It was not in their worldview. They were convinced that there would be a resurrection at the end of time. But this would not happen. And that's why they were so surprised. That's why they didn't believe Jesus' words and his claims. But some worshipped, but some doubted. You've got to wrestle with the fact that women were eyewitnesses and they did a great job. You've got to wrestle with the fact that there was honest reporting from Matthew. He's not airbrushed. He's not edited account that some people had doubts and they were big ones. But third one, what about the truth that people's lives were changed completely and they were changed forever. Changed lives. How do you deal with that? In the account of the resurrection, look at sentence 18. All authority, says Jesus, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. Do you realize what Jesus is saying? And to whom he's saying it? He's saying to these 11 uneducated fishermen at this point, with my authority and with my power and with the Holy Spirit in your hearts, I want you to go and change the world. You can't do it in your own strength, but because I died and because I've been raised, I have all authority. I'm with you. Go and get on with it. And they did. Now, why would they do that if it was a hoax? Why would they do that if it was a scam? It would be absolutely nonsensical but they changed the world. You read any reliable non-Christian historian and they will say about the impact that the first disciples had in the first 200 years. How Christianity swept through the Roman world and all the good that they do. What motivated them to do that? In what power did they have? What strength did they have? If it's all a sham, if it was a hoax, well, they could have taken his body away. Okay, if they did take his body away, when persecution came, when the centurions came knocking at the door, would they not really just have fallen on their sword, so to speak? Would they not have just said, yeah, it was a hoax, you've got us, it was a big sham, you've caught us, take us away? Where did the compassion come from as they ran towards people in need in the plague of Rome and Jerusalem? Where did they get that strength from? Why did they not run the other way? Where did their sacrificial love come from that changed the world? Would they die for a fraud? I don't think they would. Here are some good reasons for the resurrection. You can trust the women. You wouldn't include those if it was made up. You can trust the reliability of the honest reporting of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Look at the evidence, please, I plead with you. And you need to explain the fact that these people's lives were changed. This backwater Judean band of brothers changed the world and the women as well. 
How did they do that if it was all a sham? But that's not the biggest thing. It's not just a naked truth the resurrection Christian claim. If Jesus died and was raised to life again, it has a huge impact on our lives. Here's some things to think about as we move to our second point. What does it mean? Sentence 20, Jesus says, just four words. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. He's with you in four ways. What do I mean? First of all, Jesus says, I'll be with you in history. I'll be with you in history. Look at verse 18 again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If you know something of the Bible and many other places in the New Testament, it describes how Jesus was raised from death to life again and how he ascended back to heaven. And the phrase that's used often is to be at the right hand of the Father, at the Father's right hand. That's the, the seat of authority. That's the seat of power. That's the seat next to the king. It's the seat of the prime minister, the person who would get stuff done, the person who had delegated authority, the person that you could rely on and trust to get things done, the one who runs the country, not the king, under their authority. And God was raised by his father. The son of God was raised and seated at the right hand of the king of heaven. And Jesus says, now I'm raised from the dead. I will always be with you. I will always be with you. I'm in charge of history now. Everything is under my control and authority now. I am for you now. I'm running things now. I've got sovereign control over every aspect of history and every aspect and detail of your life now. Why? Because I was raised to life again. Everything is under the influence of the cross and resurrection principle. The cross and resurrection principle. What's the cross and resurrection principle? Do you remember the evil that we saw at the cross on Friday? The world doing its best to do its worst? Do you remember the evil that we saw Satan doing to the Son of God, destroying him, laughing at him? The rejection, the betrayal, the injustice that Jesus felt after the kangaroo court that he went through. Do you see how awful the suffering was to a degree that we'll never know? But after the devil and after the world has done its worst, what happened? What was the only thing that they actually achieved? There was death. But then there was resurrection. There was the plans of the evil one. But they were all in, under the plan of God. The evil of the cross was swallowed up by the glory of God. People who hated and rejected the message and person of Jesus were then wondering about his claims afresh. Evil was swallowed up. Death was defeated. The world did all it could. And yet it was all in the wonderful plans of God. The people who knew Jesus was a great man who had been raising uh, dead people to life again, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind. They stood in front of the cross with tears and amazement, some with words of hatred and disgust and dismay. Can't see that God would ever bring anything good out of this. But then on the third day, on the third day, God raised his son from death to life again. And what that means is this. Jesus is with you and me in history. It's the cross and resurrection principle that all things work to the good of those who, who love him. It's the cross and resurrection principle. Everything, nothing is out of the control of God. 
It may not be that in one year, it may not be in five, it may not even be in ten years. That the huge things that you are struggling with in your life will be put right. But the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus as he returned to heaven proves that one day all things will be put right. Because Jesus Christ is with you in the middle of history. He's in control of every aspect of it. And the resurrection is proof of that. What confidence that would bring to you and to me. What confidence that would bring to tell other people about Jesus and the hope that we have because of the cross and the empty tomb. He is with us in history. Does not mean everything will be fine in your life today, tomorrow, next year? But in the end, Jesus is with us now and the resurrection is proof that all things will be well in the future as well. Jesus also is with us, not just in history. Verse 18 says, Jesus is with you in the word. He's with you in the gospel. Sentence 18, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. I'm with you always. Go make disciples. Teach them to obey everything. Jesus is making a link like erudite glue. His presence and the gospel come together. You cannot know Jesus without the gospel, without the word of God. In the word of God, you meet the person of God by the spirit of God. And Jesus says here, all authority is given to me. Teach them to obey everything I've said. Teach them to obey the gospel. Go into the world and do it. In Luke 24, you meet the disciples of the Emmaus Road, face covered in tears, heads down, dejected. Jesus has left them. Their hopes are shattered. Their future's destroyed. And yet Jesus opens up the Bible to them. He opens up the Old Testament to them and shows how every chapter whispers his name. Understanding the gospel is the work of the Spirit. And God comes close and says, Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. And what happens? Their hearts burn. Their hearts are set aflame. And they go out in the power of the Spirit of God and they change the world. Because Christ died for your sins according to the gospel, according to the scriptures. You have life in him. You know him. And the claim of the gospel is this. Christ is in the middle of history and by his Spirit, through his word, you can know your maker right now as if he was flesh and blood today on earth. He is flesh and blood today, but in heaven. He can be as real to you as the person you're sat next to. He can be. He must be because of the resurrection. He's also with you in Christian communities, with you in Christian community. Notice verse 20 again. It says, and surely. Now that is as limp as a chocolate teapot. And surely. The Greek word there is a strong word. It's a bold, underlined word art, 10 years ago, flashing font. It's really strong. The word there is saying, behold, surprise, look. Let me tell you about this incredible surprise, says Matthew. Behold, I am with you always. But here's the catch. It's not just a soft word if we read it as surely. We've got to read it as a behold. Here's the catch. I am with you always. The you is plural. We live in the Western world. If you've been brought up in a different culture in the East, this would not be a big enough struggle for you as it is for us. 
we always read that as an individualistic promise from God to us. God is with me. He's my savior. He's my rescuer in my heart. And that is true. But here Jesus is saying, I'm with you. Plural. This is about community. This is about God's people. This is life together. Friends, you'll never get to know Jesus and grow in your relationship with Jesus by yourself. You will burn out. You will get too discouraged. You will fall on your faith or face, so to speak, and your faith will be flat. You can't just come to church once a year at Easter and know Jesus personally and in a real way. You're walking with your sisters, you're walking with your brothers on the journey of faith. And as you see one another relate to God, that's how our faith can grow together, corporately. We learn more together than we will apart. People can challenge us. People can spur us on. People can rebuke us where that's needed and done carefully and from a heart of love. You can hear words from God through your friends that you won't hear yourself. That's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in his wonderful book, Life Together. He talks about the importance of community, one another ring in the church. He says, sometimes you can hear Christ speaking to you in a way you couldn't if you were just sitting alone with your Bible in your closet. Kind of a funny picture. I think he means a small room rather than in a cupboard. But Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm with you corporately. And there's a great job to be done. And there's a world that needs to hear the gospel. You're not alone. I'm with you in history. I'm with you in community. And I'm found in the word of God by the spirit of God. And finally, Jesus says, and this means I'll be with you to the end. To the end, Jesus is with you. Do you believe in the resurrection? Not of Tiger Woods, but of Jesus Christ. Do you believe that Jesus died for you? Have you, have you personally put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, who was crucified for your sins and who was raised to prove that you have life? He will be there at the end of your personal story. Whatever it is, it will be a happy ending. He will be there at the end of history because God raised his son from death to life. Everything will be made right. But here's what I want you to think about. What difference should that make to you today? What difference should it make? On uh, Friday or Thursday, we, we started to watch The Return of Mary Poppins. It's pretty good. It's not as good as the original. Neither is that new version of The Messiah, but that's another story. It's a great film. Whether you like Mr. Darcy coming out of the water in Pride and Prejudice, whether you like Mary Poppins, the older than you one, whether you like The Messiah, whichever version, there's something in art when it's a great story of the dragon slayer returning. And we say, yes. A couple who over an hour and a half in a film miss each other and they get together and they kiss and they go off into the sunset and we say yes and we shed a tear. That's if we're men. Lots of tears if we're ladies perhaps. There is a knight who we long for to rescue us. All these great stories, all these great pieces of art and literature and films. Every time you see a great story like that, there's a moment at the end where you say yes. And a tear. And a book that's closed. And it heals your heart. Because that's what you long for. You long for all the wrong to be made right. You long for the romance to be real and true. 
Friends, if you don't believe in the resurrection, every time you finish that great book, every time you see that wonderful film with a great victory at the end, and you say yes, Actually, the trouble is as you walk out of the cinema and as you put the book down and go on your rest of your life, you will be saying, but the world is not like that. And your heart will not be mended. It won't be feeling as it should and as you want it to. Because you disbelieve in the resurrection. If you uh, read the book and watch the film and look at the art, your, your heart will always be on a downward trajectory. But way to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ Every time you saw that film and read that book and saw that wonderful piece of art and you thought, yes, that's what we're made for, that's what we long for, your heart can be healed in the person of Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus today? What does the resurrection mean? The resurrection means fearlessness now. It means spiritual intimacy with our Father and our God. There's a possibility of deep, lasting community and there's a joy that swallows up all sorrow and a happy ending that swallows up all the crosses that have ever come into your life. Where is Jesus now? All authority, verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, plural, always, to the very end of the age. Let's pray.